and welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly telecoms and data center podcast brought to you by the teams at Capacity and Data Economy. I'm your host, Deputy Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Berkett-Gray and Senior Reporters Abigail Appiah and Natalie Bannerman. Over the course of this episode, we are going to be talking about the biggest stories from the last week. Um, But before we get into those, a quick roundup of the headlines. In Europe, the European Commission this week published its draft data adequacy agreement. Zeo deployed two fiber network cables interconnecting the NJFX campus to its global network. Um, Meanwhile, a cable fault affected WIOCC customer services between Djibouti and Marseille. Digiplex bought land in Denmark for five new data centers on a single campus, and HGC launched its Eyeball as a Service service um, to reduce the time to market for Tier 1 and Tier 2 OTTs. Um, In Malaysia, the country set out its 5G launch plans, which, much like India, is going to involve it building its own network, um, which it expects to be live by the end of this year. And over in Alaska, Alaska Communications launched Extreme Internet, which will bring the fastest ever broadband speed to the state. Um, And at the end of last week, just after we recorded the last episode, um, shares in GTT Communications plunged 29% after rumours spread that the company is considering a pre-packaged bankruptcy filing to reduce its debt. Um, In the world of finance, we published results this week from Palo Alto Networks, which published its first billion-dollar quarter thanks to its response to the SolarWinds attack. Um, Meanwhile, at Indosat Oridu, revenues were up 6.9% last year, and Macquarie Telecom posted its 13th consecutive half-year of revenue growth as it launched its $3.9 million SD LAN service. Um, And Telecom Italia also had some good news, which Natalie is going to tell us all about later in this episode. Um, But first of all, we're going to start to today's episode with Abigail, who will bring us this week's data centre roundup. Abigail, over to you. Yeah, so this week has been very packed. Um, We'll start with Macquire. So Macquire Data Centres and Macquire Government, which are both part of um, Macquire Telecom Group, will be launching its latest facility in Canberra in Australia. The company said that the data centre facility is built to house the most classified Australian government workloads. Um, The $17 million spent on the data centre is a product of a successful year by the company's own admission, during which Macquire invested over $100 million into um, the construction of Australian data centres in Sydney and in um, Canberra. The launch follows the completion of the company's IC5 data centre in December 2020, despite the challenges caused by COVID, of course. Macquire worked with um, Australian construction companies um, on all the data centres, so they're trying to do um, to make sure that all the facilities are, you know, um, built by Australian companies and also run by Australian companies also. The build involves um, four kilometres of underground electrical conduits, 15 tonnes of copper in the main cables and generators powered, um, powerful enough to run 400 homes, which is very powerful. Another interesting announcement this week that I also covered was from data centre company Sistera, Technologies, who unveiled a merger with Starboard Value Acquisition Corporation um, with plans to become a publicly traded company. The merger is valued at $3.4 billion, um, and upon completion, the transaction um, is set to um, have Sistera um, 
retain approximately 58% ownership of the combined company. Um, the company, once combined, will operate as Sistera um, and expects its common stock to be listed on the NASDAQ stock market. Um, the company has a footprint of 61 data centers in 29 markets around the world. And once the transaction is complete, the combined company will be the third largest publicly held global provider of retail credication and interconnection services. Um, moving on to India, Iron Mountain this week is set to form a joint venture with the data center credication provider WebWorks. Iron Mountain said it expects to invest $150 million over the next two years and anticipates um, being the majority investor in the venture after the investment period. The first phase of the transaction is expected to close within the next 90 days. WebWork operates three carrier neutral data centers in Mumbai, um, Pune and Delhi. The company said that the investment will enable WebWork to immediately expand its operations in its three existing markets and subsequently expand into Bangalore, Hyderabad and Chennai. Um, Iron Mountain data centers is making the investment to support its existing hyperscale network and content and enterprise customers looking to expand in, pan, in, in the pan-Indian um, region. So um, with the combined footprint of 225,000 square feet, WebWork houses six points of presence, provides four megawatts of capacity and supports over 6,000 um, 6, servers. And lastly, um, big, big news also in India, Adani Enterprises and um, so Adani Enterprise, which is the flagship company of Adani Group and Edge Connects, has announced their new joint 50-50 um, joint venture called Adani Connects. The joint venture is set to develop and operate data centers throughout India, leveraging on both companies' capabilities. The um, address, um, so they, they, they're doing this you know, venture to address the growing need for reliable IT infrastructure. Both organizations are committed to investing capital into the joint venture over the next dec decade to build out the Indian um, the Indian data center market. And also they're gonna make sure that the, um, the data centers will be green, which is quite important. Um, I did speak to Philip um, Marangela this week on this announcement and, you know, as much as he revealed, you know, that both companies will be investing capital, there was no real detail as to how much capital is coming from each side. But, you know, judging by the fact that it's a 50-50 split, it will definitely be equal. But as to how much fig the figures are, we we just don't know. Um, now, the joint venture has a huge goal to build out one gigawatt of data center capacity over the next decade. Adani Connects will also develop um, a portfolio of edge data centers strategically located throughout India that will support the need for more um, proximate proximate capacity. These edge sites are designed and planned to scale with demand and become full-scale data center campuses in the future. Um, so yeah, it was quite an interesting talk. Um, um, Philip also mentioned that this venture was a long time in the making. So, you know, it was nice to hear what the company are doing in India and some of the stuff that they've been doing in the background. Um, Adani um, Connects, the joint venture has already committed to five uh, markets. Um, in advance and has already begun developing and constructing sites in Chennai. Fantastic stuff. Um, so it really is all eyes on India at the moment then. Yeah.
Um, because we have Digital Infra India coming up on the 9th and 10th of March, so very opportune time for all this news to be breaking. Um, but it's really interesting about the data center space in India because this is something that's growing at quite a rapid pace, and um, kind of like other emerging markets that you've covered, um, Abigail. What are the kind of like local drivers of that? What's you know, what's kind of propelling that growth? It's definitely broadband. Broadband is what's pushing um, the Indian market at the moment. And we, we see a lot of people um, in India, you know, getting online. The need for um, connectivity is growing exponentially. And also the fact that they are trying to boost it with renewable energy is also quite rewarding to see. So, yeah, it's definitely broadband and the need to be connected. Excellent. Well, we will have much more on those trends over the next couple of weeks then. Um, thanks, Abigail. So from Indian infrastructure to another capacity event now, um, Metro Connect USA, which has been taking place over the last few days. Um, fully virtual and COVID safe, I hasten to add, but we have lots of US theme stories in the news this week um, as a result of that event. Um, and Alan has not only been covering some of those developments, he's also been covering some of the sessions. So we're going to pivot over to Alan and the US now. Um, and first up, let's talk about AT&T because they're facing some big loss apparently on video services um, and they have that spectrum bill too which although it's much smaller than Verizon's it is funded with debt um, so Alan on that note over to you. Thank you they have a lot of debt uh, 150 billion is what I've been reading um, uh, and they're trying to basically sell whatever they can you know it's one of those issues where you know even even a company that's not really doing very well, but you can eke a few cents out of, is up for sale. Um, that's being a bit unfair. But six years ago, they bought DirecTV, which is a, a satellite TV company, was independent. Uh, they spent, ooh, how much for on it? Uh, $49 billion uh, to buy it. And of course, since then, what's been people been doing? They've been looking at streaming. So Netflix came along, lots of other streaming services came along and people stopped thinking we'd need to have uh, a satellite service with a pre-packaged choice of channels and all that sort of thing. And no choice of start times for movies, you know, so oldie worldy. I mean, I've got uh, a, a subscription to the UK equivalent, which is Sky TV. And I hardly ever watch it, you know, and at some point I'm going to have to cancel my subscription uh, and join the trend because um, mostly what I watch is streaming. Um, and it's just there. It's a legacy service. And AT&T have found that, but they've still got this debt. Uh, if they spent 49 billion, that's a third of their debt. Trouble is, they can't get much for it. Um, the best offer they've got is apparently from a, a private equity company in the US called TPG, which is not TPG, the Australian telco, but a, a, an investment company in, in the US with the same name. They, we don't know how much of uh, DirecTV they'll buy, but it will value the business at only $15 billion, which is, you know, means they'll have taken a hit of $35 billion over six years, which is a bit sore. You know, it's uh, um, bundling in with DirecTV is uh, AT&T TV now, which has got too many T's in it to say comfortably. Um, <laughs> and Uverse, which was uh, the future only a few years ago, which was uh, there again, cable TV like service that was delivered all over their fiber over their fiber to the home uh, system. So they bundle these three together, DirecTV, AT&T TV now, and Uverse, and sell a chunk to TPG. That's the rumor, hasn't been confirmed, neither TPG nor AT&T are commenting. 
meanwhile, AT&T has also been, you know, going into streaming. It's got HBO and HBO Max, both of which came when it bought a couple of years ago Warner Media uh, or Time Warner Media, as it was, uh, for a huge amount of money. Um, I always get worried when I see telcos. I mean, ATT is a great telco, one of the biggest in the world, one of the most successful in the world. But every so often they say, oh, we ought to get into media. Uh, BT in the UK has done the same. You know, it's got BT, uh, BT Media, it's got sports services, uh, buys football rights and all that sort of thing. And you think, is this really the same? Why should they be competing? They're a, they're a telco. They should be providing carriage to other or, or services rather than trying to do it themselves. Um, AT&T has gone down the same way. There's a few. They're not that many, but AT&T and BT are two of those I can think of. Um Anyway, uh, we will no doubt hear in the next few days whether this uh, sale is is agreed and then publicised. But these are widespread rumours across the US. The company that's buying it, uh, allegedly, <laughs> uh, it has uh, 85 billion assets under management. So it's going to be a big chunk of their outgoings. Some of their investments already are Airbnb, Spotify, SurveyMonkey, Uber and Univision, which is a Spanish language uh, service for the United States, but uh, we will see. Mm, like you said, it is kind of an inf- a legacy service now, isn't it? So, would there really be that much, um, that much kind of potential to make money on it in future? I guess that's what the buyers will be assessing at this point in time. If you've got broadband, why should you say I'll have a package of these twenty-five channels, channels for this amount of dollars per week? I will, you know, mm-hmm. subscribe to Netflix, subscribe. Subscribe to Disney Plus or whatever it is. Subscribe to all sorts of other services, Amazon Prime, and you think, well, that's that's what I want. I've got so much on there. Why should I have something that's scheduled? We're moving away from the era of scheduled channels. Yeah, unless maybe they can get some huge series in that people don't mind watching one episode at a time, week by week, and it could um. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know, maybe reinvigorate interest. Um, yeah. But staying in um, in the US now, um, over to T-Mobile, um, some yeah. service updates there, um, which I believe also ties in with developments north of the border with TELUS. What's happening? Yeah, this is a, a couple of surveys by OpenSignal. They, they're a, a UK-based company, do a lot of brilliant research on quality of service, mobile service right around the world. And what they do is they have an app on people's phones so they can actually measure what sort of service experience people get uh, and obviously the people volunteer to put it on their phones so it's not it's not spyware um but they've done uh, uh, research onto into the mobile networks in the US and this is what now 11 months since T-Mobile and Sprint formally merged which was 1st of April 2020 um and so T-Mobile has come out absolutely top in almost all the categories that they've uh, Measured, and that's again against AT and T and Verizon, uh, the two competitors. And uh, I'm quoting OpenSignal senior technical analyst who was responsible for the uh, report. T-Mobile standalone 5G network has significantly increased its average availability, urban and rural areas, um, but benefited rural areas the most. I mean, it's just done really, really well, um, and. Uh, not necessarily faster speeds because of the spectrum issues and i think the t-mobile will be rolling out new spectrum that will deliver faster speeds they've been focusing on the 600 megahertz band which just gives wider coverage especially in dense 
uh, areas and rural areas as well, not necessarily in, in city centres. Um, but very good news for T-Mobile, um, winning so many categories uh, year on year. Um, and yes, as you said, north of the border, again, there's one outstanding winner. It was again open signal. It looked uh, in, in Canada and there it compared TELUS with Bell Canada and Rogers and TELUS came out top. Uh, mostly on 4G, because uh, 5G is still a wee bit early, but uh, TELUS did really well on almost all categories. Video experience, for example, 74.5 points on a 100-point scale. Um, really good ratings, um, better than the... They're all good, uh, 72 and 68 for Bell and Rogers, but uh, these things make a difference, and I'm sure TELUS is going to be using that in its promotion to Canadian subscribers. Uh, it's a very competitive market. It's also quite a high price market in, in Canada. I, I speak from experience of having visited the family there. But um, <laughs> it's uh, Open Signal, an interesting company. I mean, they do most of their, they've been able to keep up their research over the last year because a lot of it is automated and it feeds into into their systems in London and then they analyze it. So, but uh, you get some interesting uh, responses from where, where, which are the best companies, who are the best experience, who are providing the best experience, um, who are providing the best um, speeds, uploads and downloads. Yep. Excellent. Well, staying in the US now, um, onto the um, kind of other side of the industry now, looking at chip manufacturing. Now, this has been a big issue um, globally since the pandemic began um, more than a year ago now. Um, but most recently, we've seen Biden really going to town on this. Now, yesterday, he announced a $37 billion plan to boost um, semiconductor chip manufacturing in the US. Um, but we actually reported, well, Abigail reported earlier this week that Apple supplier Foxconn doesn't think that the actual impact on its customers is going to be so big. Um, so I guess the next conversation is on semiconductor chip manufacturing. <laughs> um, now, Alan, this is another special subject, <laughs> of course. Um, what do you kind of see happening here? Because we've had the announcement of a $37 billion plan to boost manufacturing, but it's, I don't know, is this a thinly disguised throwback to the protectionism and the anti-China rhetoric of the Trump era, or is it a development of real concern? I think, I think, Melanie, it's a development of real concern. And I think it started beginning of last year with uh, in the equipment industry in the telecoms market, when across the Western world, in Europe and in the US particularly, they realized how dependent our high tech industries are on a small region of the world. In other words, southern China, Shenzhen, that sort of area, uh, and factories there. And we are incredibly dependent on that. Um, that's where chips are made. That's where most smartphones are made. That's where all sorts of equipment. I mean, I even earlier this week got a, a SIM cutter because I've got a new phone and I wanted uh, a smaller SIM card and I didn't want to. There were no shops open, so you can't go and get one. So I had took this SIM out of my old phone and put it into the SIM cutter to cut it down. And that's made in Shenzhen. You know, I bought it from Amazon. It arrived within a few hours, but it's originally comes from Shenzhen, from southern China, just across the border from Hong Kong. Um, we're very dependent on this small area and I think people have finally woken up. I remember watching a debate in the House of Commons in London last year when uh, Nicky Morgan, who was then the um, minister in charge of culture and media, um, stood up and talked about high risk vendors, by which he meant Huawei and ZTE. Um, and 
MPs around the House of Commons were suddenly stunned that we, if you exclude Huawei and ZTE from the market, you're stuck with Nokia and Ericsson, both of which are great companies, but it's just two companies dominating the market. And that's just ridiculously low number. And since there's been a complete transformation in the equipment industry since then. And it's now getting to the chip industry, though. You know, we've got people like NVIDIA and ARM and a lot of other chip designers, but most of the factories that they make the chips in are in southern China. And that's just risky. Um, and it's particularly hit the car industry over the last few weeks. I mean, they're just uh, a report uh, on CNBC only two weeks ago, $60 billion global chip shortage. And it's really hitting the car industry. I mean, cars used to be made of metal <laughs> and rubber, but now they have chips. And if you don't get the chips, they don't work. Um, and it's not just the pandemic has slowed the container ships um, or the flights across the world, but it's also meant that the, it's woken people up to the fact that we're dependent on a really small part of the world for all of our, or the majority of our high-tech goods. So supply chain is going to be a word of the year, I think, and it's, happen, it's happening in Washington with, uh, with Joe Biden. I guess it will be happening in Brussels with the EU and it'll be happening in other parts of the world as well. Certainly, yeah. And it's development, obviously, that as those in the industry know, affects smartphones and data centers as well, um, yeah. just kind of computers um, and cars. But on the car front, actually, fun fact that I discovered today, a car these days has around $800 worth of silicon in it, which, you know, as you mentioned, Alan, you don't really expect that, do you? No, no, I don't go in many cars because I don't drive myself. But yeah, when you do go <laughs> into a car, a minicab or something like that, or an Uber, yes, it's just full of GPS and all sorts of other displays and things like that. It's just extraordinary. You compare some somebody's old Austin Mini uh, <laughs> from the 50s and 60s. Yeah, it's uh, it's very high tech product. Um, thanks, Alan. And just going back to the Foxconn um, update as well that Abigail posted a few days ago. Um, I think that news broke on the 22nd of February. Um, Abigail, what's what's happening in the data center space with this? Do you hear much concern about the um, global supply chain for chips? Um, no, th there hasn't been any recent updates in regards to, you know, the semiconductor world worrying about whether there is going to be a, a you know less of a demand but i know that a lot of people have um you know outside of the data center um world have been complaining i think it was um um the brand porsche that recently also announced that they they're quite worried about the the shortage as well so um yeah it's it's really interesting it will be news i will continue to follow definitely looking forward to that um well there is good news in there i mean um Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Co, TMSC, in November announced that it is actually going to be opening a um, manufacturing plant in Phoenix, Arizona. And I believe there are 18 states currently which actually have their own manufacturing capabilities. So we'll see how the story plays out, I guess, over the next year or so. Um, hopefully COVID will no longer be an issue then. But um, yes, global supply chains. If any logistics professionals or specialists are listening, we would love to hear your views on this one. Um, I, think, I think Melanie, one of the issues is that yeah putting them in the US that's great for the US but uh, as far, I can't remember it's a long time since I cover the semiconductor industry but I don't can't think of any big manufacturing plants in Europe at the moment and they need to be dispersed around the world we can't we can't be dependent on 
flights from Shenzhen International Airport or from the port there. Uh, we have to be, we have to have our own stocks, and it's not it's not imposing or reimposing international trade barriers. It's it's resilience and security. You need, you know, you need multiple sources for these things. Mm. Definitely. Um, thanks, Alan. So before we move on to the wider telecoms update, um, we heard on Wednesday afternoon that Inmarsat has a new CEO. Um, and given Alan's story last week about meeting former Intel CEO Andy Grove, Alan is now going to share the story of when he met Inmarsat's new CEO, Rajiv Suri, who is also formerly the CEO of Nokia. So you've, you've got a few companies yeah. in, in this one story. Oh. So Alan, last one from you. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Melanie. Yeah, I mean, I first met him, I think, at uh, Mobile World Congress when he was CEO of what was then called Nokia's, Nokia Networks, I think. Uh, and then it merged with Siemens's operation, uh, Nokia Siemens Networks, and he became the second CEO of that. Um, and so got to know him reasonably well by with meetings mainly at Mobile World Congress. But looking at Outlook, uh, my Outlook calendar, which dates back to... Uh, 10 years or so. Yeah, I had dinner with him on the 25th of April 2012, apparently, and then also on the 7th of November 2013, uh, both in London. Um, so there we are. But uh, yes, he, interesting guy. He's been through a really difficult, challenging time at Nokia. Um, uh, he's been there about 25 years. He joined them in India. He is uh, of Indian nationality or at least origin. Um, and he Nokia was in deep financial trouble, which goes back to the earlier story about resilience and how many vendors we need to have in the industry. Um, he sold off a lot of the businesses and focused on the uh, the phones and also the radio uh, network side of uh, mobile. Um, and then they merged with Alcatel-Lucent, which itself was a merger of Alcatel France and Lucent of the US. And then basically got back a lot of the sort of business sectors that he'd originally thrown overboard. Um, um, but I think Nokia is sort of back on the right track. He was the first and so far only non-Finnish citizen to run Nokia. And the Finns are now back in charge. They're immensely proud of the company. Um, but, and it's, they've tended to mainly hire Finns as the senior execs. And then he left only a few months ago. Um, and uh, I guess he's been looking for alternative employment. And I'm not sure why Inmarsat has decided he is a great person to, to lead them, but he's, it's an interesting, challenging time for the satellite industry. Uh, as we've been saying over the last few issue, uh, few episodes of this, the, the LEO satellites, the low orbit uh, server, uh, companies are spending a lot of money and Inmarsat is still very much uh, in the uh, geostationary era, uh, which is high capital expenditure, um, low latency, I mean, sorry, long latency, because they're so far above the Earth, uh, with very long planning uh, horizons. So we'll see what he does to Inmarsat. It's been, a, it's owned by private equity, uh, as almost everything is. It's dipped in and out of private equity. It was originally an international organization. We'll see what it does. Uh, Rajiv Suri, we look forward to catching up with you at some point in the future. <laughs> Hopefully over a bite to eat. Ah, oh, yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'd be nice to be able to do that again. You know, I've been into a restaurant for as long as I can remember, really.
Yeah. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. It's something to look forward to in was it 21st of June in the UK? They're saying everything's going to be back to normal. Yep. And Rajiv is now based in the UK. So, um, yeah, that could work out very well. Um, but no, good point there, Alan. He has obviously the strong tech experience, but also the strong business and turnaround experience. So we just don't know which one of those in Marsat's looking to tap first. But I'm sure it's going to mean a lot more, a lot more news coming out of satellite space very, very shortly. Cool. Thanks, Alan. Um, so now to wider telecoms roundup. Natalie, tell us what has been happening in the world of telecoms this week. Thanks, Melanie. Um, so yeah, this this week um, we have another subsea cable project heading for the sea. Um, this time from a company we're not overly familiar with. Um, they go by the name of F. FB Submarine Partners, and they are, are a private developer of international telecoms networks. Um, so they are building GigNet One, which is a 1,200 kilometer system from Florida to Cancun, Mexico. Now, the project has reportedly been in development for the past two years and will go, go live in 2022. Um, and so far, the project has seen the completion of its desktop route survey, regulatory and permitting feasibility studies in both Florida and Mexico, um, as well as um, market demand and analysis studies um, in addition to you know selection and contracting of key suppliers for the design the equipment installation etc so the next steps um, of development for the system include carrying out a, a marine route survey which is actually due to start in March of next month um, the company has also selected Xterra uh, a company that we used to write about quite a lot actually they've gotten a bit quiet on us um, as of late but they are our developer of subsea network deployments they kind of do all the tech side of things um, and they will serve as the primary um, EPC contractor for the project specifically the subsea wet plant which is the fiber and the amplifiers or the repeaters uh, depending on what you call them uh, the submarine line terminals in Florida and Mexico and they will also manage the installation also part of the project is IT International Telecom a developer of subsea cable systems um, and they provided the desktop route survey and they will can they will contribute the uh, marine route survey for the project in partnership with Xterra as well. So uh, yeah, really, really great um, subsidy pro project. It's always great to see the uh, the kind of private players moving into the space um, and we'll kind of watch to see what happens there. Now, KKR, the private equity firm, I feel like I, I'm speaking about them every week. I'm not sure about everybody else, but they have entered into an agreement. Say that again. Sorry, I was just, sorry. I was just going to say they. You, we really do talk about them every week. They have made so many investments recently. It's actually insane. Yeah, it's actually getting to the point now where I feel like no one's going to question whether or not private equity is involved with any deals anymore. It's just kind of them or nothing. So KKR is definitely leading the charge more so than any of the others. Um, but they do have a, a really big um, global investment fund. They they really are not hanging around to to spend their money, which is great. Um, but this week they entered into an agreement with Telefonica actually, and they are going. Going to establish Chile's first open access wholesale fiber optics company, if you can say that twice over, um, worth about a, a billion dollars. Now, under the terms of the agreement, KKR will acquire a majority stake in Telefonica Chile's existing fiber optic network, and then the two will actually turn it into an open access network through a newly created, locally managed Chilean company. Uh, no names have been given yet, but Telefonica will retain a 40% stake and KKR will get the 60. Now, once completed, the newly created business will serve as Chile's first open wholesale digital infrastructure and creating a, a, a 
really competitive marketplace for all operators in the country. Um, basically, everybody can get involved, which is always a good thing. Uh, once completed, they plan to expand broadband coverage from its current 2 million households to a minimum of 3.5 million households by 2023. They also want to provide wholesale service to more than 40,000 businesses, telecom towers and small cells. So the deal is actually due to close the first half of 2021 and is obviously subject to regulatory approvals um, but you know no word yet um, that there's likely to be any pushback so we'll keep an eye on that. Now in the world of uh, software defined networking Unitas Global actually ushered in an industry first. I'm always hesitant to say that just in case that's not the case but that's what they've reported um, with the launch of Unitas Reach which is the first automated edge access to any cloud location. It's a purpose-built network and it can it connects cloud providers, carrier neutral data centers, SaaS applications, and edge access networks to form what they describe as a multi-service global inter interconnection fabric. Uh, Unitas Reach has also been designed to provide a range of connectivity to suit various cloud services. Um, it has simple integration to traditional enterprise networks, and it actually has a presence on about six continents, which means it really has got that that real global uh, global reach and and probably the the scale that is required in order to to deliver on all of those needs. Um, it also features automation, monitoring and orchestration to the edge, really delivering what they say is a flexibility in service creation and, and really enabling, as I mentioned, the, the kind of scale in capacity um, on demand, which is what every enterprise really needs these days. Um, but congratulations to Unitas Global. It sounds like a very innovative product. Now, lastly this week, um, Telecom Italia actually released its Q4 and full year 2020 financial results. Um, actually, um, and the results were actually bolstered um, by its two year transformation project. Uh, full year revenues for the company were uh, 16 billion euros for 2020 compared to 15.7 billion, which was projected for the period. Um, this, however, was about 2 billion um, lower than its 20. 19 results. Um, its fourth quarter results was about uh, 6 billion euros, um, up from 64 million in Q4 of 2019, and its net profit for the year stood out at about 7.2 billion euros, a significant increase on 2019 due to um, tax realignment. When that is actually discounted, the final figure will stand about 1.3 billion. Um, so the strong results from the company are largely due to its ongoing, um, as I mentioned, transformation project, which included you know, an organisational restructure and repositioning of its business. But um, as I'm sure our audience is aware of, you know, the, the company has really um, had a whole bunch of initiatives that have really uh, gained significant progress as of late. Um, Tim Vision, which is its um, internet video service on demand, the launch of FiberCop, which we've spoken about many times, you know, it's joint venture with Flash Fiber and Fast Web in the fiber space. Um, it's 1.6 billion sale of mobile, uh, mobile tower assets, the launch of uh, Newville, its cloud services business, as well as a whole host of other things. So after the release of its financial results, um, the company's shares were actually trading about 8% higher um, as of the morning of the 24th of February. So congratulations to Tim. Um, I, it's great to see all their hard work kind of come to fruition and really reflect in its results. But that's it from me. Thanks so much, Natalie. Congratulations to Tim. Indeed, some great results there. Um, let's hope that 
let's hope that it continues for them as well um that brings us to the end of this week's podcast thank you so much to the team for bringing us latest on all those stories um and thanks also to everybody who listened we will be back next week with more stories from the global tech and telecom space but until then you can catch up with all the latest from across the industry over at capacitymedia.com there you can sign up to the daily telecoms news alerts from capacity and also the weekly news alerts from data economy you can also catch up with the metro connect usa sessions on demand and sign up to virtually attend digital infra india on the 9th and 10th of march for now that's all from me and the team have a great week take care and catch you next time